watching the watch or people. This week, we had several unanswered questions about policing in Edmonton and the police commission's role in holding them accountable. So we're talking with counselor and police commissioner Ann Stevenson to hopefully get some answers. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 175. Uh, this episode that we're going to drop in your feeds in just a moment is a long time coming. I know both you and I had reached out to Councillor Ann Stevenson as soon as the convoy drama and police commission drama unfolded and had heard that she wasn't quite sure what she was legally allowed to say. It sounds like she's getting pretty sure about it. And we're grateful she's come to talk to us. But we cannot hear from her until we hear from the rapid fire segment. Edmonton has been named the fourth most affordable city in the world and the most affordable city in Canada, according to a report by the Urban Reform Institute. Mayor Amarjeet Sohi was delighted by the finding, saying, quote, This is more evidence that Edmontonians should shoot for the stars. Even if they miss, they'll land on the moon. We submitted a nomination package outlining why we're a great world-class city, and they responded by saying, it's cheap to live here. Score! East Edmontonians noticed a rotten egg gas odor in their neighborhoods early this week, and Imperial Oil has confirmed that the smell was due to a leaky valve on one of their storage tanks. While fixes are ongoing, the company has said that the odor may remain throughout the week, leaving several residents very upset, saying, quote, It's not okay for these companies to just dump the smell on this neighborhood. We moved here because of the distinct, mature neighborhood smell of backed-up sewer gas at the bottom of every hill and slope. Not this. This week, an article appeared in Extra magazine about Pride Corner, the group of counter-protesters that have shown up in response to a busy White Avenue intersection being dominated by homophobic street preachers for years. A manager from Transportation Operations commented, commending Pride Corner and saying, quote, We were pretty upset by the coverage saying homophobes were dominating a busy intersection. We strive to ensure busy intersections in pedestrian districts are dominated exclusively by smog, vehicle noise, and traffic fatalities. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this week we're here to tell you about APN, uh, the Alberta Podcast Network. It seems a little bit counterintuitive, but Mac, I'm looking here and it says that APN allows you to advertise with the network as a great way to reach Albertans. Have we considered, just putting this out there, running an ad for speaking municipally on our <laughs> podcast? Could we generate a sort of like infinite money scenario where we pay them and they pay us back and it, it just funds infinite advertising? Recursion. I love it. <laughs> oh, this is what happens when uh, we are allowed to write the copy. Now, you, as the advertiser, can write your own copy and force us to read it. And it will come out much better than the Alberta Podcast Network ad. Also, if your business or organization produces its own podcast, the network can help you build listenership by spreading the word about it on our own podcast, just like this one. You know, we tell you all about podcasts that are available wherever podcasts are sold. You can learn more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This podcast in the last couple of months has, because of some of the decisions being made on city council and being made in the city of Edmonton, become a little bit about the police in a way that it hasn't been for the past few years. We're coming up on four years now. One of the reasons for that is because of the police commission. And we had talked with Tematopi Oriola, who suggested that perhaps the police commission was abdicating their responsibility to hold the commission or the hold the police service accountable. We had 
talked at length in the episode Cops about the struggles that the police has had with its image and its effective policing. And of course, we talked about city council and various motions to defund the police or in fact, give them a $1 million raise and the context around all of those decisions. But through it all, we've had a few complaints about the opaqueness of police accountability in the city of Edmonton and the lack of answers on what the police commission is doing, why they're doing the things that they're doing and why they're not doing the critical things that Mac and Troy on the podcast have told them to do. So in service of trying to find those answers, we've got a great guest today uh, rejoining us, friend of the podcast, actual friend of the podcast, uh, Ann Stevenson, who is a city councilor and a police commissioner. And she did mention in the pre-show that she is joining us today in her capacity as Ann Stevenson, the, the city councilor, and is not speaking on behalf of the police commission. So welcome, Ann Stevenson. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be back. We thought we'd start with what hopefully is a simple question, which is, how did you get to be one of city council's representatives on the police commission? Because in the very first meeting of city council, there was an agenda item related to appointments to boards and commissions and agencies, and that item was deleted. <laughs> and then in subsequent meetings, there was orientations. And in some of those orientations, there were motions to appoint your colleagues to various boards and things. But the orientation around police governance was private, and we couldn't find any motion that actually appointed you to the police commission. So how did that all happen? Did you raise your hand? Were you told to join the police commission? Fill us in. So interesting. And I think a great example of how theories emerge in the absence of clear information. So it's actually fairly mundane. My memory is that appointments to boards and commissions used to happen very soon after the elections within, you know, as you say, one of the first agendas. And my, my recollection is that uh, the mayor gave direction that we just needed a bit of breathing room. We just needed to take some time to pause, reflect, and that applied for all boards and commissions. And he also solicited our preferences for which boards we'd like to be appointed to. You know, I've always had uh, a general interest in policing. I spoke about community safety and well-being as part of my campaign. But I have to confess that I assumed there would be such strong response and desire. Everyone would want to be on police commission that I didn't honestly think that I'd be selected. Uh, but I did identify police commission as my my number one pick for, for boards and commissions. Council then received sort of a draft of all of our board appointments. We reviewed those and then we voted on them. So so it was certainly voted on. I can track down that exact date in that report if that helps. So we'll have to look into that. I know there was a bunch of appointments on uh, November 8th. So, you know, okay. a, a week or so after the start, as you say, a little bit of breathing room, not very much. So we mentioned off the top about the hats that you're wearing mm -hmm. because you're a city councillor and you're also a police commissioner. Mm -hmm. Are you able to speak as both at the same time, what are the boundaries that you have to follow? And clarify for us, what exact role are you speaking as right now? Well, thank you for the opportunity to clarify. So I am absolutely speaking as Ann Stevenson, a person and a city councillor, so in no way representing uh, the commission. And, you know, it's no surprise that you're confused about the various hats and what what I can do wearing each of those. And I frankly had to seek, uh, you know, multiple legal opinions to really understand my ability to speak and, uh, and act in public. So it's really important to me to uphold both of the oaths of office that I have 
uh, committed to. So as a city councillor, I think being transparent, representing community concerns, and also communicating and being transparent and and being a bridge uh, between uh, the police and the city and, and Edmonton residents. So I take that very seriously. At the same time, the commissioner's oath, which you can find in the Police Act, it's I think the first appendix, it's very short. It might only be one sentence, but it says, I will, I swear to not disclose any matter or evidence that's brought before me on the commission. That's some pretty broad terminology. So I really struggled with understanding what that meant, understanding what leeway I had for communication. And so, as I said, I, I was able to reach out to some, some great advisors and just get a clear interpretation on that, which has led me wonderfully to, to now feel very confident in being able to speak to policing matters, both to media like yourselves, as long as I clarify I'm not speaking on behalf of the commission, and, you know, through blogs and other community conversations. So there's always that piece around, um, you know, disclosure of anything that's brought forward in confidence. So I'm really mindful of maintaining that. Yeah, otherwise, I am able to speak freely, which is which is really wonderful. I'm, I'm excited to be able to do that. And you're actually sort of my first very public conversation about policing. So so thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're going to be very cautious not to disclose any secret airplanes is the takeaway there. <laughs> Ooh, can't even get a laugh on that one. Ooh, that's how serious this is. <laughs> you know, when you put in your Twitter bio that, you know, the views expressed are your own and not your employers. I mean, I doesn't actually hold any legal weight or anything like that, right? I mean, you're always in, in, in one, from one perspective, a representative of the police commission, are you not? Well, I think the clarity there is that I am not speaking on behalf of the commission. So this was the other sort of nuance and, and complications. We have a very strict guideline in our code of conduct as commissioners that only the chair and the vice chair speak to members of the media. That's very, very clear. Um, But the clarity there is speaking on behalf of. As I can speak as a commissioner, I can hold opinions. Um, I think there was a commissioner in Calgary, actually, who, um, you know, had quite a opinionated opinion piece. um, And they were able to do that because that was their own opinion. They weren't speaking on behalf of the commission. So, you know, I think it's just always incumbent on me to be really clear about those roles and responsibilities and, and clear in which capacity I'm speaking of. So once again, I am not speaking on behalf of the commission, but happy to speak about matters and my own opinions on them. I was speaking with former city clerk, Elaine Sinclair, and raised the suggestion that perhaps it would be cleaner if city councillors were not also police commissioners. Because even if you clarify that you're not speaking on behalf of the commission, you're in a position where you need to be discussing the very budget that the police commission gets, right? I understand if you can say, you know, I'm not this is my opinion about this, but it's as city councillor, not as a police committee. It's just it's kind of an awkward thing to have to do all the time, as I'm sure you've figured out by now. <laughs> do you think it's different for you and uh, Councillor Hamilton uh, compared to the other commissioners who don't also have that public city council role and that, you know, vote one of 13, admittedly, but that vote about what goes to police and what doesn't? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very complicated. And and not ideal in in many ways. So I do think that there there is an important role, particularly as we we go through a, a process of 
I think, greater police reform, uh, commission reform, which is something I'd love to talk about more. Um, You know, there's a role for counselors to play. I think that we have a privilege, which is very important in in the context of the accountability role of the commission. So so I think that there's an important role to play there. For me, a real nuance or, or a challenge is just around having a voting seat on the commission. I find that challenging and certainly something that I think is worth exploring in terms of having non-voting members of council on the commission, I think is uh, there's there's real value in that. It is it is very complicated to govern two separate organizations which have such a close uh, relationship with each other. Let's go then to police commission and talk at least a little bit about the reforms that you mentioned you'd like to pursue. And I think a good place to start is we had Tematopi Oriola on the show in March, and he had some pretty strong opinions about how the commission should be holding the police service accountable. Uh, one of the things he said was, quote, while it does not have to degenerate into adversarial relationships, it cannot be one of just unquestioned loyalty or obedience where no one knows who is actually in charge, end quote. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, uh, I don't watch a lot of police commission meetings. And I think the reason I don't watch a lot of them is because when I do, and this has been my experience the past few times I've watched police commission meetings, it seems like a rubber stamp organization for the police. It seems like the chair of the meeting truly is Dale McPhee, the chief of police. I've never gotten a strong sense that the police showing up to police commission meetings have any deference of authority to the police commission. I'm wondering what your take is on that. Yeah, it's it's a really important question and something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And so there's two pieces I want to talk to, I suppose. And the first just goes to transparency. So when I, my first commission meeting, so I sort of got sworn in and then was thrown into a meeting. I was, I was also really surprised at how quiet it was that I wasn't hearing a lot of questions. It's just not, not the style I was used to. If you know anything about our current council, we do tend to ask a lot of questions. Um, And I, I sort of asked about it and, and I was told that you know, what often happens is that information will be shared with commission committees, first of all. So by the time it's come to the public meeting, commissioners have had those committee meetings, have asked questions, have sort of clarified different points. So I've certainly, as I've I've taken part in, in more meetings and at the committee level, I certainly do see those questions and, and see that dialogue. Uh, and in my mind, it's a, it's a real shame that that's not happening in public. Uh, I think a lot of the, the discourse that we have uh, is good, and I and I see the accountability. I see the questions that that come up. I think they're they're good questions. They're the right questions to be asking. But again, the public doesn't get to see any of that, and I think that the absence of seeing the act of accountability can work to undermine uh, the confidence that people have in that. But tied to that, I mean, a, a challenge in that transition is that the folks that currently serve or, you know, have traditionally served the, the traditional role of a commissioner is a volunteer. So, you know, a non-public person who is technically getting a stipend, but I mean, effectively, in no way is, is this a full-time position? Is it the sole focus of their lives by any stretch? So I think the balance there is just managing those expectations for, for individuals who maybe didn't sign up to play to be playing such a, a public role. The other piece I just 
you know, want to focus on as well is the way we've traditionally thought about the commission is that it is the the commissioners themselves who are supported by a very small staff. Um, but, you know, the buck sort of stops at the commissioners. Whereas I think there's a way we could rethink the commission to be so that commission staff, so people are their full-time jobs and, and more than, you know, the the half dozen that, that currently work at the commission who are all wonderful and, and really excellent in their work. But again, a very small team. Um, if that team was expanded and that the commissioners then act sort of as governors of the organization of the commission, if that makes any sense. Uh, and what I think that allows is, again, you you have dedicated resources to review reports being provided by the service. And then the commission, sort of as an administration, would provide their feedback and their recommendations to the commissioners. So rather than the service providing recommendations to the commissioners, it would be the commission staff providing those recommendations. This is just sort of the start of what I'm starting to muse about. But these are some of the pieces I think could be really important in, in strengthening the accountability role of the commission. The commission's uh, annual budget is $1.4 million, and a little over half of that is for personnel. Not a huge team, as you say, and a pretty small amount compared to the overall uh, police service budget, of course. Has there, to your knowledge, ever been discussion about, for example, making the committee meetings public or bringing more of that discourse into the public eye? You know, I don't know of any historical conversations. I, I think it's a conversation I'm I'm keen to have and continue to have. So, so definitely, you know, watch this space. I think that's something we can we can move towards. I think there's an appetite for that. I think there's there's an interest. And if you wanted to do that, is it entirely within the commission's ability to make that happen? I'm thinking of the suggestion from your colleague. Uh, Council Rutherford to expand the police commission. Uh, but you can only do that to a certain point because the Police Act has limits and rules and things like that. And like if you wanted to change how things are done at the police commission, how much of that has to come from council? How much of that is limited by the Police Act? How much of that can the commission do itself? Can you fill us in a little bit on what the boundaries are from that that perspective? You're absolutely right. The Police Act plays a huge role in that. And I've gotten to know the Police Act much better than I ever thought I would. But from what I understand, I should just preface this by saying I have not done the detailed analysis. But from my reading, I don't recall seeing any limitations on the size of the commission staff. So there are limitations on the number of commissioners, for example, Mm -hmm. um, the number of council representatives on the commission. But I don't recall anything that would restrict the administrative part of of the commission, except for, of course, budget. So that's, that's something that would have to be provided for. Although, interestingly, council would not be able to direct that a portion of the budgetary allowance be for the commission, as far as I know. It's entirely up to the commissioners to decide that. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding. So council approves the envelope and then the commission determines, you know, what gets funded. So, I mean, I think if there was interest on the commission uh, to, to expand the staff, then we absolutely would have the authority to create a budget for the service that included uh, I think actually how it technically works is that the commission identifies what they need and then the rest goes to the service um, based on a budget provided by the service. So Mac talked about uh, Councillor Rutherford's motion to expand the police commission. This was adding two additional seats to the police commission to just uh, make it a little bit bigger. And when we had talked about it on the show, I had made an equation 
roughly to the Supreme Court situation in the United States. You know, if you're mm -hmm. dealing with a Supreme Court that's not making decisions that you like, well, just expand it and then you can dilute the voting power. And on further reflection, that analogy, I don't think holds up quite well, uh, because we can also dismiss police commissioners for cause if they're underperforming, unlike the Supreme Court where there are lifetime appointments. So isn't making the police commission bigger just like a really bad idea? <laughs> you know, I take direction from the Safer for All report. So I think that that is an exceptionally well-written and well-produced. And what I mean is uh, the process by which it was created is very excellent. And so that was a recommendation of of the Safer for All report to, to increase the number of seats to um, allow additional community representation. For me, the next step is being very purposeful in those seats so that we actually have designated seats to provide Indigenous representation, to provide gender and sexual minority representation. So to be really intentional and deliberate in that in that composition. You know, I mean, no, I don't think it's a terrible idea. I think it's in line with what the Safer for All report called for. Uh, and it's just ensuring that we're intentional about those appointments and, and clear about what our expectations of those appointees are when we're going through the recruitment process. I feel like I've come around to Troy's perspective on this, which is that the quickest way to get somebody to be a fan of the police seems to be to put them on the police commission. It is concerning that if it is, from the public's point of view, a rubber stamping organization, adding another person there under the guise of, you know, increasing community involvement, community oversight, but then having them be muzzled and not able to actually provide any oversight could really backfire. No? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think... It's, it's interesting that I think that there has been just an implicit belief or understanding that if you join the police commission, you can no longer critique the police. And and again, through the, the analysis that I've done and the legal advice I've received, that is in no way the case. Of course, there's always a balance. You you have relationships with your fellow commissioners and, and then with the service that you're providing governance for. But there really is no limitation in terms of continuing to speak out, continuing to raise questions. I think that that cheerleader piece is a really interesting one. And again, I go back to how a lot of conversations should be happening in public. So I again, being very mindful of not disclosing any information. But I could share that there was something that I I was feeling uncertain about, that I had a lot of questions and uncertainty around. And I was able to ask about it and, and got great answers. Like so much of what I hear behind closed doors is is encouraging, I think is is very good work. Not to say that it is exclusively so, but there is excellent work that is happening in EPS. But again, the public isn't privy to that information. And and that to me is a real loss. That's a real shame and a huge part of why I think we just need more transparency in this process. So you talked about receiving additional clarity that, you know, as police commissioners, you can speak up and you can still critique the police as commissioners. But it appears to be the official position of the Edmonton Police Association that no public official can criticize the police in any capacity. And in fact, they itemized that concern in a code of conduct complaint that was rightly dismissed against Councillor Michael Jans. But how do you square that circle where the organization representing police 
in our city. They take a view where accountability via criticism of public officials should be chilled, should be stopped, and is inappropriate of someone in your position as a counselor. And I would imagine they would think even more inappropriate in a police commissioner's role. So how, how do you square that circle in terms of conflicting public advice that we're hearing from different organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think that really speaks to the traditional role that policing has played in our community and how that organization has been viewed. So what I find really interesting, coming from coming from city planning, criticism and very harsh criticism is, is part of the job. I mean, it's just part and parcel of being a city planner, of doing public engagement. I, uh, in my career, have been you know, accused of terrible things and personally and as a profession. And so that that stuff, you know, I, I hear the feedback. I think it's always important to be open to to the feedback you receive, but I don't I don't take it to heart. I don't I don't take it personally. Whereas I think what I what I perceive is that that expectation of being challenged, of being scrutinized, of of being critiqued, just culturally just hasn't hasn't really been in our society towards police. I think that's true across Canada. I think that's true across North America. So I think what we're witnessing right now is just it's a huge shift. It's a huge shift to be, yeah, to be held up as a profession, as as unquestionably heroic members of our society and to now face, you know, what really is quite a lot of public criticism. I think that that's a really hard transition uh, for any organization to make and any individual to make people identify themselves as police officers. And so I, I see how people take that very personally. And, you know, there's not going to be a quick fix to that. I think what I try to continue um, pushing is that I absolutely agree that good relationships are important, but good relationships can't be based on a lack of challenging uh, between parties. I think it's always important to remember that questions are not criticism and that criticisms aren't attacks. That is a, a very slow culture change. You know, I think so, another principle I hold really dear is that we need to be tough on the problems and easy on the people. And I think that that can get really muddled. And, and uh, again, people can take things personally. And then there are also just some very personalized attacks as well. So it's complicated. I just, but I think absolutely, we have to push back against this notion that we can't have difficult conversations, that we can't have difficult conversations in public, that we can't question. Um, we need to start being comfortable with those difficult conversations. And it takes things like the integrity commissioner making the decision that they did and, you know, you getting legal advice and then being able to speak about things and coming on a podcast like ours. So, you know, I can see your point that there are some things that, that need to build up over time. Let's just Imagine for a moment, though, that you forgot to say that you're not speaking on behalf of the commission or that you were, you know, very publicly critical in a way that <clears throat> maybe you have learned uh, would be inappropriate. You know, the Police Act, as you pointed out, has an oath that you have to uh, agree to. But what are the consequences? Like what could actually happen if you did speak on behalf of the commission or did say something out of turn? Well, it's a great question. And I don't know. I think something that I'm really mindful of is is constantly checking in with myself to make sure that I'm not self-censoring. So again, I always want to be mindful. I adopt the principle of no surprises. So if I am 
going to be, you know, asking a tougher question. I, or, you know, for example, being on this podcast as a courtesy, I want to let commission colleagues know, let the service know just for awareness, just so they're not caught off guard. But I mean, could they kick you off the commission? I mean, you're a city councillor. <laughs> city council gets to decide who goes on the commission, right? I mean, again, it's not only the commission, but my council colleagues could could decide that they they no longer wish to have me as their representative. I sit in an incredible position of privilege. It is harder to get rid of me than it is, you know, a commissioner that maybe doesn't have the same public profile. So what I'm also trying to think about is how do I carve out that space and how do I expand that space using the privilege that I have just to create more of that that expectation and that space for commissioners to speak out, to share their opinions, just to create that that public space. So I, I mean, there is a scenario where I could uh, be unappointed to the commission. I could make a statement and that does weigh heavy on me. I, I value the work. I love being on the police commission. And so that is why I'm so mindful of not providing cause to to have me removed. But what I want to say is I don't want my you know desire to be on the commission to silence me in any way to to prevent me from sharing thoughts and and helping hopefully to to facilitate um, some change and also more community conversation about these issues. So you've talked to us a little bit today about um, your desire to make some change on the police commission and specifically your desire to have the police be accountable and answer the tough questions and specifically that you think we should be asking tough questions of the police. And now you're speaking to us not on behalf of the police commission. And I think that's important because the last time we heard from the police commission in an official capacity, it was when the board chair said that we should not be asking tough questions of the police and we should not be criticizing the police. And the police's response is unassailable and correct. And that was in John McDougall's Edmonton Journal op-ed. What did you think when you read that op-ed in the journal? You know, certainly, as was mentioned in the public commission meeting, there were a diversity of perspectives on the commission in, in relation to that letter. I share your perspective. I felt that it didn't speak to, you know, what I was hearing in the community. I heard very clearly that there were concerns from, from the people I represent in the downtown uh, about how various aspects had been handled. And I think regardless of what the ultimate opinion is on how that was handled, it's always just absolutely critical to acknowledge that feedback, acknowledge what we're hearing and reflect that back to the community. Perhaps I'll continue to be the thorn in your side on this as I think I was on Twitter. I know you probably got several emails because of my What's tweet. What's so funny, I still don't know what your tweet said. Everyone has been like, oh, that tweet was so mean. But I actually, I'm just like, I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know what you said, but you, please feel free to let me know. But uh, to, to, yeah. to reframe the situation, um, <laughs> there was the point in the police commission meeting where the op-ed oh, yeah. came up and it was posed by a commissioner that this is the official position of the police commission. And if anyone disagrees with that, they may speak up now. And no one, including yourself and Sarah Hamilton, spoke up. You, you were silent and therefore the board chair was speaking for you in that moment. And I get stressful situation. Maybe you didn't have the legal advice that you needed, but that is your role there to speak up and to 
push back on these things. And I, I called you on that. And I wonder if you could clarify exactly why didn't you speak up? Because it doesn't sound like you thought the board chair spoke for you in that moment. Mm-hmm. No, I really appreciate that. And and I mean, not a thorn in my side at all. It's a totally valid question. I appreciate why people were concerned with my non-response. And I mean, you you hit it exactly. I mean, I what I knew at that time was that commissioners, except for the chair and the vice chair, were not allowed to speak to media. So that was the rule that I was holding in my head and which is why I didn't speak out. And it was that moment, that <laughs> feeling of, of frustration of not being able to be transparent, of not being able to speak openly, that that really spurred me to have those conversations about, you know, what are the limits of of my oath as a commissioner? What, what are the legalities around it? So no, I totally appreciate the concern with that, that is not how I should have handled it. If I had the information I have now, I, I definitely would have responded differently. That uh, op-ed from um, John McDougall was really in response to the the way the police handled the convoys that were downtown every Saturday, January and February. And one of the things that uh, happened in February was that you launched something on Twitter. So you're not there very often, but you tweeted about the heart of Yegg's safe walk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I criticized you for that, <laughs> thinking I did that tweet. And thinking, like, why is our commissioner, who should be asking questions, launching a safe walk? Uh, what What was the thought process of for that? And and uh, would you do that again? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think your tweet was, "Aren't you embarrassed that this is the best you can do?" Yeah, I'm gonna clarify, Mac totally lightened that up. The question that's in the doc (laughs) is, how is that anything but a reflection of the inability or unwillingness of the EPC to do its job? So (laughs) Mac is softballing you. (laughs) Well, I had the hardball tweet already, which you saw. So, oh, no, I mean, and this is these are these are appropriate questions. They're the right, right questions. And I, I value you asking them. And yeah, I mean, again, at that point, I was really learning the limitations of what I could do with my various roles. And yeah, I can raise the concerns. I can ask the questions, but I can't make anything happen. And so for me, it was a decision that I didn't I didn't feel that we needed more outrage in mm-hmm. in the discourse. I feel that with the convoys, we need a different type of response. So meeting force with force, I just don't think is the right way to engage with these these issues in our society. So again, recognizing that I could not force a tactic, I couldn't tell anyone to deploy a resource here or do this differently. What I reflected on what I did have the power to do was to respond to the residents I was hearing from very frequently who were feeling isolated and scared uh, in their homes. Uh, and not only was that a way I felt I could respond to the needs that they were sharing with me, but just overall, I think the convoys made people feel very powerless and that as citizens, we had nothing that we could do. Um, but there's always something we can do. There's always actions we can take. And so it was just sort of a reminder, too, that just we have agency. We can make choices as a community about how to keep ourselves safe. I don't want you to think that I did not, you know, this was this was my life. This was what mm-hmm. I had over for days. And there were many other ideas. I mean, I wanted to close, you know, have a block party on 109th. 
um, change that space, you know, just trying every every iteration that I could think of. And, and this is sort of what was left. So I appreciate that uh, it may not have been the response that that others wanted or or that was ideal, but that's kind of what led me in that direction. I do appreciate that you took some action, that you tried to do something, that you tried to be responsive to your constituents. So don't don't misunderstand my criticism. <laughs> it's just trying to weigh the, as you have to do all the time, you know, the the weight of being a commissioner, a city councilor, you know, and a resident and, and citizen in the ward, right? I mean, it would seem like you should have more power as a commissioner than you actually do, right? Right. And, and at this, and like, and I... I also just didn't want to complain about how I had no power. Like, I think that's also a very frustrating message that if someone mm. who is a counselor and a commissioner is saying, oh, I can't do anything like that is in no way helpful. So, again, I think but I think where I missed the mark there was, you know, I think there is an important context in terms of limitations. But again, maybe a missed mark there, too. But I, you know, something something that I have followed up with since. So in in our commission meeting last month. Um, you know, I've I made a motion about the governance committee working on uh, basically a scope of work for a lessons learned report back on those convoys and just, you know, really reflecting on on what went well and then what didn't go well. And I hope that that helps to inform proactively what we do next time. So again, the other challenge is that we're trying to we're being reactive. We're responding to something new. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on the fly. Lots of dynamics. So I'm really hoping that that lessons learned work can can position us to have better outcomes the next time around. During the budget discussions, one of the silver bullets for police accountability, one of the silver bullets for solving our police budgetary problem was this magic police audit that we as city council and as the city and as the auditor would take a good look into the police budget and understand what value we're getting for our police budget dollars. That was passed by city council and subsequently shelved by the police commission. What happened there? Why aren't we auditing the EPS? No, I think it was shelved by council, actually. That is correct. You know what? Why don't you just correct me on the record and <laughs> tell me tell me what's going on there? Yeah, so it's, it's public record that, you know, a motion was made in December, and then um, the city auditor came forward with a work plan that city council then discussed in private Mm -hmm. When we came out in private, we accepted that report for information, but didn't action the work plan that had been set out. Could you elaborate as to why you didn't? Yeah, and this is this is why I hate private meetings. Um, <laughs> because no, like I that deliberation was in private, and so I'm not able to share that. But I think it's an incredibly valid question, and something that I will take away in terms of. Uh, working through how we how we can communicate about that because it's it's a very important question and a very valid question. Um, so so here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to speculate wildly, and you're going to tell me <laughs> when to stop talking. Now stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one quick question that I think you should be able to do just a yes or no answer. Does city council need? the Edmonton Police Service or the Edmonton Police Commission's consent to audit the EPS? I believe the answer is yes. Okay. So the powers that the city has under the Police Act are to request the information necessary to make budgetary decisions. 
I believe that it is not interpreted that that includes conducting audits unless invited to do so. A final question related to budget. You had mentioned earlier about the quote-unquote envelope that uh, city council hands to the commission and the service, which is a uh, fun euphemism for $300 million. Do you as a commissioner, and I recognize maybe you can't share what the budget is, but do you as a commissioner get a good look at the EPS budget? Have you seen behind the curtain? And do you know in sort of the detail that city council wants what's going where? I think that's a great question. And I don't know that I'm able to answer it from a commission or commissioner perspective. It's something that I think, uh, you know, you could certainly reach out to the the commission chair or vice chair to to comment on. I think from a a counselor position, I could say that I think that there is a lot of detail that I I would hope to see when making a decision on on such a large budget item. Um, I think that we as a council can work to clarify again as as permitted under the police act what we require in information to make our our budget decisions you know and i think i think another conversation so we are as you both probably know on may 16th or anyway i think either may 16th or may 24th there'll be a report at council about police funding and about the formula and about a funding approach to community safety and well-being. So I think that will will certainly start a conversation. But um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't believe that at that time there's. Yeah. Anyway, I'll just say I think that will start an important conversation. But but certainly, you know, as a counselor looking looking for those budget details to help make a really informed and data driven decision. What's the over under on that report getting delayed? <laughs> 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 I'm feeling confident about it. I think it's been in the works for quite some time. I would also say, too, that I don't think that what will come forward in May is going to be exactly right. I think it's going to be an iterative process, uh, not only over this year, but for, for years to come. I mean, this is this is complex. This is huge. And it's a big shift. And I certainly don't think that anyone could get it right on the first round. But, you know, I'm hoping that that what we see in May is at least a starting point to, to continue those really critical conversations. The city has audited the police or done police-related audits, I think Postmedia reported five times in the past. So it's not that we've never been able to get more detail about the financial information, but we aren't at the moment. As our listeners know, we are heading into a new four-year budget cycle this year, combined with the report that you're talking about, which is updates to the police service funding formula. Do you feel like you have all of the information you need in order to make a decision about our single largest budget item? And if not, what kind of information as a city councillor will you be looking for over the rest of the year so that you can make an informed decision when we get into the budget deliberations? Yeah, I I really appreciate that question. And I would say no, you know, I don't, I don't think I have um, all the information I need to, to make a really clear choice around that. So I'm hoping that hoping that much of that will come forward in the May report. You know, there's a really interesting question too, about some of the initiatives with EPS partnering with community agencies. I think that's really exciting work. And Again, just wanting to understand if that money can flow directly to those community agencies rather than going through EPS, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking at, you know, a tiered policing model. 
So making sure that uh, roles that are being done by a sworn member can not be done by any other agency or group or individual. So for example, a peace officer versus uh, a police officer. So those are some of the, the themes that I'm interested or broad buckets in terms of the budget questions I have as a counselor. Um, but certainly looking forward to to seeing what comes forward in May and, and then what sort of gets prompted from there in terms of the questions that we may have. In the last episode where we talked about Police Commission, uh, both you, Mac, and Duncan Kinney had asked questions at the Police Commission about the revocation of Progress Alberta's media pass to attend EPS press events. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that snafu that situation and shed some light on it? Well, I appreciate the question. And unfortunately, I'm not able to speak about it. So as as it's known publicly, uh, Duncan Kinney has submitted a complaint against the chief. And that then sort of enters a, a process under the Police Act, a legal process under the Police Act. And it's not not something I can speak to at this point. Completely unrelated to police, but we have you here. And one of the motions that you made that I was very excited about was to remove the completely useless car lane from 102 Ave beside the new LRT. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching this. I've been very excited about this, but the due date did change on it from March 8th to May 31st. And Administration it seems to be calling this the 102 Avenue LRT pedestrian crosswalk recommendation. I just want to check, do you have any insight into administration and is administration completely missing the point of your motion? I shouldn't be fearful <laughs> about this. No, no, I don't think there's any reason to fear. I think the intent of the motion is well understood within administration. I've I've had a few updates and feel confident that that everything is moving in the right direction. Uh, it's also something I'm very excited for, appreciating it's it's maybe not happening quite as soon as we'd like, but I'm I am comfortable with the timelines. I was gonna say I walk by there four times a day. <laughs> <laughs> and there are huge orange signs that say road closed, you know, block and cars still try to drive there every day. It is oh, shocking. Man. I just you know, even <laughs> if we get it approved, your motion approved and like we're gonna need spikes on the road or something to keep the car wet. <laughs> okay. Well, counselor, thank you. You've uh, answered as many of the questions as you could about uh, this <laughs> challenging situation you find yourself in. Uh, I'm impressed that you said on the show that you still enjoy and want to be a police commissioner, <laughs> given all of this stress that it has caused for you. Uh, so thank you for for answering all those questions. I have just one more. Have you seen the list? The list? The list. The list that we're all on. The police monitoring us and knowing oh. who the known critics are. <laughs> I have not ever seen a list. Do you think there is one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean... It's not hard to know that we're critics, I guess, right? I was going to say, I mean, I think, I think I have a mental list, which you two are on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, can I just say in all seriousness, I think we really run into problems when we see others as enemies. And I think it's fundamentally important that we we don't fall into that narrative, that we don't think of, you know, pro and anti. Um, I think genuinely uh, we are often all working towards a similar end goal and, and looking for those commonalities rather than what what divides us is is really critically important and not to take away from those tough conversations and those hard questions but uh, 
yeah, no, no one is an enemy in this conversation. Well said. I guess I have not done my job sufficiently well if I'm not yet your enemy. <laughs> We're going to wrap it up there. We've kept you a while, but it's an important conversation. We do like to leave our guests with a final closer. If there's anything we didn't cover or anything you want to plug, um, any last things you want to let our listeners know about, now's the time that you can do that. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful for the chance to to have spoken with you today. I know I've been quiet the past six months. I've not been on Twitter. I've not been speaking uh, through blogs or anything like that. But I'm really excited that I have new staff on board and I'm planning to do a lot more of that. You know, so I apologize for my radio silence on social media in recent months, but look forward to engaging with more folks uh, moving forward. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is owned by Chris Kazowski, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. If you're in the Edmonton area, you may have seen him around town, pre-pandemic at least, in his signature bow tie, supporting local causes and boosting local businesses. He walks that talk with his business. It's why Park Power shares its profits with local charities. As a new customer, you can choose a community partner to receive 10% of the proceeds from your electricity bill, like the CKUA radio network. You can visit parkpower.ca slash CKUA to find out more. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Anne. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.